Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel. We'll look at the end of chapter 19 this morning, verses 38 through 42. The text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page for you. We've been making our way through John's Gospel. Um, it's John's account of the life of Jesus, all of it, uh, up until his uh, going away into heaven. So it's his life, his death, and his resurrection, interactions with the disciples after that. Um, and we've looked at the, la- uh, the last couple of weeks at Jesus on the cross. We've spent a little bit of time here in chapter 19 focusing on that because it's a major point of focus for the Christian church. As we consider the scriptures, we consider God's activity in the world, the gospel, the meaning of it all. Um, you, you think about the cross. It's a big focal point for us. Today, we arrive at Jesus' burial, which seems to be not so much in our focus usually. It's easy to skim over this little paragraph, especially as we're anxious to get on to the resurrection after so much talking about Jesus' suffering and death. Uh, let's get on to the happy part, right? The resurrection. Um, it's hard for us to slow down and, and camp out here. Hard for us to look at what's really happening here. I think it's kind of like uh, in Doctor Who. I mean, you're familiar with Doctor Who at all, some of you. Um, it's, like, it's like when they use those low-level perception filters. It's a psychic device that makes you unable to pay attention to certain objects. Certain objects or certain places or things or people even. Um, you just overlook them because there's this psychic perception filter field thing that makes you overlook things, mainly by making you not want to pay attention to them. It's, it's actually difficult to notice something when you want to overlook it, when you've got to uh, overcome a strong instinctual aversion to, to slowing down and looking at it. It's hard to do that. Have you ever looked at a dead body? Have you ever looked at a dead body? For me, it's very difficult. When I've looked at a dead body, didn't want to keep looking for very long. You probably don't want me to keep talking about that for very long. So I can feel like this, uh, this little bit here about the burial of Jesus, about his, his dead body going into the tomb, which feels like it's sort of floating in limbo. It's hovering around the edge of our perception. We're not quite sure what to do with it. It seems unpleasant. We just like the discomfort to end, so let's move along to the good part, the the resurrection. We'll do that next week. It's appropriate. It's appropriate for us to feel this way, and that's exactly why we should should hang out here and consider it, consider his burial, because it's hard for us to look at. It's hard for us to understand what's happening here. Paul counts his burial among things of first importance for our faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, you know, he talks about Christ dying and Christ being raised from the dead. But he says Christ being buried. That's one of the things that's that's of primary importance for the Christian faith. And our creeds give it that place. Our creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, give it that place of importance, despite our tendency perhaps to overlook it, the burial This moment is a strange moment. It's an impossible moment. It's a moment that makes no sense to us in this world. Jesus crucified, dead, and buried. The Lord of life. 
the Lord of all the earth, the Lord who's making all things new, six feet under. He hit rock bottom. Or if you prefer the biblical picture, he fell into Abaddon, the bottomless pit. It's unspeakable. So let's talk about it. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would help us, you would not leave us floundering here, looking at a word that's too difficult for us, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to look at this scripture, to hear what you have to say to us, by your Spirit that you would unite us to Christ, give us eternal life by faith, unite us to this Christ who was crucified, dead, and buried. We pray that uh, you would help us through the power of your Spirit now as we consider your word in Jesus' name. Amen. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. That was horrifying. Did you notice it, or was the perception filter working? That was horrifying. There was a tomb, a new tomb, maybe, but a tomb. There was a dead body. A dead body was put in a tomb to rot. There should be no such thing as tombs. There should be no such thing as graves. There should be no such thing as dead bodies to rot in them. But because of what happened in the first garden, Genesis chapter 3, because of humanity's rebellion against God, because of our rejection of the one who is the Lord of life and all good things, because of our turning away from relationship with this God, now there are both graves and dead bodies to fill them. Genesis 3, after the first sin, God said to Adam, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the ground wasn't originally meant for graves. It was meant for life. Adam was taken out of the ground. All the good plants, they grow from the ground. 
But as a consequence of our sin, now there are graves dug in the earth, tombs and sepulchers carved out of stone to keep our dead bodies as they decay back into the dust of the ground from which God made us. It isn't the way it's supposed to be. Karl Barth says in his little book, Dogmatics in Outline, Someday we shall be buried. Someday a company of men will process out to a churchyard and lower a coffin, and everyone will go home, but one will not come back, and that will be me. The seal of death will be that they will bury me as a thing that is superfluous and disturbing in the land of the living. This is the judgment on man that in the grave he drops into forgottenness. That is God's answer to sin. There's nothing else to be done with sinful man except to bury him and forget him. So the Bible portrays Sheol. Maybe you've heard that word. Shows up a lot in the Old Testament. It's the place of the dead. The Bible portrays it as the place of forgottenness. Where you're forgotten. Job chapter 7. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. So the grave is a cold, dark, lonely place, out of sight, out of memory. Everybody's forgotten there. All human possibility, all human potential is cut off and undone and disintegrated back into the dust there. It's the end of the line. It's rock bottom. There's no fellowship in the grave. Is there? The grave is the ultimate separation. It's the end of love. Isn't it? Psalm 88. That's the psalm of despair. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you, God, <clears throat> remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon, the bottomless pit? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Is God known in the grave? Everything's wrong with this picture. There's a tomb. A dead body has been put in it to rot. That dead body is Jesus. Emmanuel. That dead body is God with us. Is God known in the grave? Psalm 139. Where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, 
you're there. Everything's wrong with this picture. And that's what makes it so wonderful that God himself would enter into it. Even the grave is not beyond God's reach. Even the grave is not an end to God's love. Even the grave is a place of fellowship with this God, this God in the flesh. Even the grave. Again, Job says, Sheol, that place of the dead, is naked before God. And Abaddon has no covering. Proverbs 15 says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before Yahweh before the one true God. In the tomb, the God-man became a thing. Superfluous and disturbing in the land of the living, dropping into forgottenness. He knows the void. He knows the emptiness. He knows the nothingness. He knows the undoing. Jesus was buried, and Paul says we were buried with him. He says it a couple times. Jesus was in that tomb in order to meet us. He loved us by joining himself to us there, even there. That's where he loved us. So the Song of Songs says in a few places, and this is the song of love, and ultimately it's the song of love between Christ and his people. And in that song, the bridegroom says, Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I'll go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Others ask, where's your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? And she says, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices. I am my beloved's. My beloved is mine. His love is strong as death. It's fierce as the grave. It's a very strange thing in the Bible. Myrrh and aloes showed up in our uh, Old Testament reading and also our, our gospel reading this morning. Myrrh and aloes are spices that are used both in love and in death. Here, a kingly amount of spices, almost 75 pounds worth of spices, are used to lay to rest the king of love. As Jack read our Old Testament reading this morning from Psalm 45, his kingly robes, as he laid in that tomb, the linen shroud of the dead, they're all fragrant with the spices of love and death because he pursues his bride even there, even to the tomb, even to the place of the dead. He went down to his garden. He went down to his spice bed to sleep the sleep of death until the new day of resurrection dawned because his love is strong as death. It's fierce as a grave. He went to the dead end of the grave for us. And by doing so, he made it a new avenue by which we could meet him. 
The grave is no longer a place of nothingness. It's no longer a place of our undoing. Because Jesus Christ has gone there, the grave is no longer a place of forgottenness. When Jesus went to the grave, he took death and he took disintegration with him. It's like in the stories when Sherlock Holmes grabs his enemy, Moriarty, and plunges over the edge of the waterfall with him. Or like Harry Potter grabs Voldemort and they, they plunge over the edge of the cliff. In order to rid the world of the, the evil of their enemies, they embraced them and plunged headlong into the void. The true story of the gospel is that Jesus Christ locked his mortal enemy in his embrace and he took it to the grave with him and he left it there. He left forgottenness itself buried in the tomb there to be forgotten. He joined himself to us in loving union, and he took our curse upon himself, the death that we deserve under God's wrath. He took our curse upon himself, and he went down to the dirt under the garden and made it a place for new life because the gospel plot turns burial plots back into garden plots. With Jesus, what was the end of the line for people like us, that tomb, It was now a new beginning. It was made new by him. The grave is no longer a place for death and disintegration. It's a place for new life. Do you believe that? The grave is a place for new life. The grave is a place for everlasting love because it's a meeting place with the Lord of life, the God of love. And you see it. You see it right here with Joseph and Nicodemus, these guys are the most unlikely disciples to come forward at this point, the, the most unlikely followers of Jesus. They're, they're wealthy, important people. The other scriptures, uh, the other gospel writers make it clear that Joseph of Arimathea was, <clears throat> he was wealthy, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was an important man, he was a good man. They're members of the the group that had just put Jesus on the cross, they had protested. They weren't on board with that decision. They were members of that group, members of the rulers, ruling group of the Jews who previously were afraid to be associated with Jesus at all. When he was alive, working his wonders, they didn't want to be seen as his followers. Joseph was a disciple secretly, John says, that's a little bit of condemnation when it's coming from John. Joseph was a disciple secretly for fear of the Jews. And Nicodemus earlier had come to Jesus at night under the cover of darkness. And now Joseph has the courage to approach Pilate for Jesus' body. The courage to do that, a thing that Jesus' own family members wouldn't do. And Nicodemus devotes a vast quantity of spices fit to honor a king, probably meant for his own burial, in broad daylight. They handle Jesus' corpse, makes them ritually unclean for the special Passover Sabbath. 
that was coming up the next day, they forfeit all their societal status by associating with Jesus, these two? That might make sense if he were still alive and ruling in awesome glory over Jerusalem right now. They might want to be associated with him then, but he's a dead Messiah. He's dead. And the whole world knows that a dead Messiah was a sham. You don't put your hopes in someone like that. Rodney Whitaker, commentator, says, states the obvious. <clears throat> they would have thought his movement had come to an end. They would have thought it hit rock bottom. So why come out now as his disciples and risk everything for a dead Messiah? It's because they had nothing left to lose. They had hit rock bottom. And so we're no longer afraid to be associated with Jesus. They didn't even know it yet, but that's exactly the kind of place where this Messiah meets with his people. And he turns their worlds upside down. Jesus' tomb was a real place. It was a real place. Now it's an empty place because of the resurrection, but it was real. We're not just talking about a spiritual truth or a metaphor for when you're really low. But it covers all that ground. It covers all that ground for us and more because it was a real place where the king of love met his people. Because he loved us, even in the garden tomb, because I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, even there in the grave. Because that's true, our graves our literal, physical graves will be like beds where we sleep until the resurrection. We're just asleep. We sing it, Jesus lives in social eye. Death, even death, is now but my entrance into glory. The place of the dead is not beyond his reach. Sheol and Abaddon lie open and naked before him. He's gone there. He's pursued you, even there. And he'll bring you through that dead end to himself, to new life. Because this is the kind of Savior we have. He'll do it at the end with your final grave, but you don't have to wait until the end of your life to meet him. Any old bottomless pit will do just fine. Any grave. All places of despair and undoing are laid bare before him. He is intimately acquainted with rock bottom and nothing left to lose. Whatever your particular version of that might be. This is a tomb world. This is a tomb world waiting to be reborn in the new heavens and the new earth, which means there are plenty of tomb-like places that can be transformed into gardens, transformed into seed beds for new life with God. Abandonment? Do you face that? <clears throat> Abuse? Addiction? Bereavement? Betrayal? 
calamity. Depression. The disintegration and the end of all your human possibilities and all your potential. The end of the line. The Lord of life, the Lord of all the earth, the Lord who makes all things new. He knows those places. And he will meet you there, even if your road takes you through the grave. He'll meet you there. He'll turn your burial burial plot into a garden plot because it's where you will meet him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've not left us alone in this tomb world, but you've sent your son Jesus to meet with us here. And we love the song, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, even in a place like this, even in the midst of the worst things conceivable in this world, you are with us. And so you make all things new. You make them new avenues for us to meet with you. Our stories don't end because your story doesn't end in a grave. We love you for who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel. We pray that you would meet with us in our low places, in our terrible places, even as we meet our end in this world. We pray that you would meet with us, and we're thankful that that is your promise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.